y'all. <laughs> I'm a southerner, so you know the southern girl is gonna come out of here. I heard there are some VA people in here, two up, two down. All right, Portsmouth, who's from Portsmouth? Oh, see, you got to get them. You got to get them. Right. <laughs> but I was so excited to hear that there are connections all over here. I found an Arojo sister, a room of one's own, of her own, um, where we met in, at the Ghost Ranch. And so there are just so many beautiful connections um, going on here. Um, I'm going to read a chapter from Crave, and then I'm going to read a section from um, the book I'm working on now. This piece was actually published by the Daily Rumpus in their Enough series, which was in response to the Me Too movement. And it really uh, means a lot to me to share this piece. Um, just to give you a little bit of background about the part that's in Crave, Life Rang On, um, I had a very, very tumultuous childhood, um, bouncing from one dysfunctional situation to another. Um, that this does have a trigger warning. Both pieces will have a trigger warning. And I wrote about these traumas, one, because I didn't want anyone else um, who might go through them to feel like they were alone. And just some information about the section that I'm gonna read now, which is called Life Rang On. Um, I, at 15, from 15 to 16, was in an abusive relationship with my first like real boyfriend. And I mean, he did all kinds of mental things to me, physical things. Um, one of the things he used to do was bite me on my arm. So in the summer, I would have to wear long sleeve shirts in order to hide it. At one point, I had two black eyes. Um, I had to sneak in order to join the military, and that was going to be my escape from him. And so finally, when I was able to separate from him, I didn't know who I was without a man controlling my life. And so Greg is the first guy that I encountered after this tumultuous relationship. Um, a few other things you might want to know. I mentioned a neighborhood, Cavalier Minor. I grew up in the projects of um, Portsmouth, Virginia, and Cavalier Minor was like the rich area where people didn't really want to come to where we lived unless they wanted to feel better about their lives. And so um, Greg was one of those, those people. Life rang on. After Sanford, I found myself in books. Spending hours dissecting Stephen King's masterpieces, examining the ways in which his dysfunction loomed less functional than my own. Machines that targeted people, planes that landed in dead worlds and aliens unearthed in tiny towns provided evidence. My kind of crazy wasn't the worst crazy in the world. During that period, there should have been time for healing, an understanding of Lori without the pressure of being Sanford's girl. But the healing never came. There was just the knowing that without a man, I was untethered, like a seatbelt flopping outside a car door. Flying in the wind, I looked free, but I was, in fact, trapped. Unable to control my flickering, I so fragile, so flimsy, proved easily caught by another man, Greg. And my husband's here, so I just want to say, baby, I'm sorry for talking about another man. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Having grown up in Cavalier Minor, Greg was what we considered an outsider, somebody who didn't live in the park, didn't slang in the park, wasn't dating in the park, and still he cruised Deep Creek Boulevard daily. He and his best friend Ricky would park their Honda Preludes, Ricky's Burgundy and Greg's Gray, at the corner store and turn their radios to the same song at the highest decibel possible. 
They sit in their cars, bopping their heads, sipping a little something, watching us in Lincoln Park like we were in concert performing just for them. Once they'd had their feel, they'd disappear into their cars, speeding off to homes where quiet reigned once the shipyard sounded the nine o'clock bomb. For us in Lincoln Park, the night had just begun. I encountered Greg one day walking to the store to get my favorite cheese on wheat crackers and orange soda. And since I was walking to be seen, I shook a little harder, stretched my legs longer when I saw him looking my way. Hey, youngin', he called as I crossed the street. What's your name? I'm Lori, I said shyly, barely looking into his steel eyes. He was a manila colored man with red hair speckled with blonde or gray strands throughout. With his hair thinning at the top, I eyed a shine glistening across his scalp. He had a goatee with those same blonde or gray strands, and he wasn't GQ like New Edition's Ralph Trezvant, but he looked good enough with plaid shirts, stonewashed jeans, and rugged boots for me to answer. <laughs> if I had been wearing heels, I'm certain I would have been taller than him. And he was chunkier than my normal type, but my standards had lowered exponentially after Sanford, so I didn't mind. And as he shrugged his shoulders, rubbed his hands together, and cooed, oh, you a youngin'. You're going to be my sweet young thing. I smiled. Not because of the bass in his car, the way his rim shined, or the fact that he looked at me as if he already owned me, but because he was right. It wouldn't be hard for me to be his sweet young thing. I wanted to be gotten. You need a ride, he asked. I tried not to laugh since he'd seen me walk from my house across the street to the store. He laughed himself as he said, oh, you live right there. I knew not to talk to Greg too long. Mama might run out of the house and embarrass me if she saw me talking to somebody at least 10 years older than me, so I acted quickly. Maybe later, you got a number, I asked. He thrust his hands into his pocket and produced a pen and paper, prepared for what he might find in Lincoln Park. What's your number, he asked. Our phone had been disconnected, and I was too embarrassed to say I didn't have a phone. So I told him my mama didn't allow guys to call my house. He, noticed, he nodded as if he'd dealt with mothers like that before. You a pretty young thing, a real red bone. You gonna be mine, he repeated as he handed me his number. Our first night out, I settled into Greg's passenger seat, allowed its skin to massage my spine, the smell of his cologne pressed against the dash, the electric window, and the sunroof. And the dashboard was lit in reds, greens, and whites that reflected off of his eyes. And they made them sparkle as he looked at me. Look at my pretty red youngin', he slurred. I could hear the saliva collecting in his mouth. We're going to have a real good time. And we did. He took me to the movies and at the Tower Mall where most teenagers of Portsmouth went. He took me to Greenbrier Mall, all the way in Chesapeake, where the rich people, you know, <laughs> where the rich people who had cars and money went so they wouldn't have to sit next to people like us. And we saw the movie Juice with Omar Epps and Tupac Shakur. He held my hand even after I dug to the bottom of the popcorn, even after it was wrapped around a cold cup of soda, which I thoroughly appreciated. And afterwards, we went through the McDonald's drive-thru, where I ordered a quarter pound a meal without worrying about how much it would cost and who'd pay for it. After we pulled into Greg's apartment complex, he threw our McDonald's trash in the dumpster, parked next to his car. Oh shit, my keys, he whispered, 
as he fingered his pockets, patted his butt and his hips. Greg said he'd thrown the keys in the dumpster, that he'd heard them clang against the still bottom. Can you climb in and get them for me? He asked. I did not want to climb in that dumpster. Even I knew only trash belonged there, but I was already his sweet young thing and he had bought me a quarter pounder. It's okay to laugh. <laughs> At the least I owed him for that. So I placed my foot in the cradle of his hands and allowed him to hoist me over the steel rim. Grime and slime crawled in between my fingers as I gripped the edge. The gum stench clung to my palm's lifeline. The smell of crabs left on a burning sidewalk wafted around me in a mini tornado, fueled by my breathing. I smelled flies even though I couldn't hear them or feel the wind of their wings beating against my skin. The stench of feces, aged like crumbled blue cheese, smacked pungent against my pinched nostrils. With my leg hurled over the lip, I felt the thick layer of sludge soaking through my jeans, the ones I'd slid on hours before, wondering if Greg would attempt to slide them off later that night. I let go, flung myself into the darkness, plunked onto the still floor, thankful he couldn't see my face. Are you okay? His voice traveled from outside of the dank. I did not reply, afraid something lurking would lodge itself in my open mouth. I searched within the dumpster, surprised at how vacant it was. Must have been empty today, I thought, thankful for gifts I wasn't sure I deserved. I wouldn't allow myself to wonder why I was there. Couldn't think this shouldn't be. Thinking and dumpster didn't go together. Nothing went together in that moment, so I searched the crevices, devoid of light. I wish the glow from the light pole could shine through the darkness, that it could help me find what I was searching for. Through the still cave in which I descended, I heard a noise. Not a scurrying rat, as I'd expected, or the squish of gunk sucking at the heel of my shoe. The noise was outside, jingling, a subtle clamoring in the form of metal against metal. Man, shit! He swore from the other side of the steel wall. You gonna be mad, he said with a giggle. I was already dirty swimming in grime, so I didn't think twice when I gripped the edge, peeked over to the other side, waiting to see what would offend me more than where I was and what I was doing. There he stood, keys in hand, swaying, attempting to hide the smile on his face. I'm so sorry, they were in my pocket. He spoke those words, but his smile said something else. You're a good girl to do that, though. Don't know anybody who would have gotten in a dumpster for me. Until I'd done it myself, I hadn't known anyone who would have gotten into a dumpster either. Yet I had. I had gone grimier than I'd ever imagined. I couldn't even remember who the clean me was. So this new person, this me to whom I had been introduced, clung to the side of the dumpster as Greg pulled her out held his hand with her pinky because she didn't want her dirt on his clean, walked alongside him to his home, washed her hands, the back of her thighs, her face, any exposed part of herself, and yet she could not be cleaned. As I watched her hours later, under Greg, feigning passion, I counted his breaths, the amount of times his body rose and fell over her. I knew what she did not, what she could not reveal to herself, it was a test. She had done everything required, 
followed all instructions perfectly, which meant she had failed. I watched her, waited to see if she would spy me, listened as his lips pressed against her shoulder, mumbled, you my young red thing, ain't you? And she nodded, moved her face away from his, and then our gazes locked, off in the darkness, connected with what she had once been. Eyes wide open, lips pulled tightly to her mouth, hiding teeth clamped together, she glared at me, the part of herself that had walked away. With her nose pulled as closely to her forehead as possible, I could tell she smelled me, that I still carried the stench of the dumpster, that my scent and my knowing was as offensive as the grime and the sludge we had trudged through. Yeah.